Mark 14. We are working our way through the Gospel of Mark a little bit at a time, and uh, thankful that you're here this morning. All you guys watching over the live stream, thanks for being with us um, as we continue our journey together. As you're turning there, heading that way, um, let me just kind of recap a little bit of where where things stand. Uh, at this point in Mark, it's it's Wednesday of Holy Week, and uh, which means that Thursday is the celebration of the Passover, the Lord's Supper, all that stuff, and Jesus will be betrayed, and then Friday he'll he'll be killed, and so we're getting closer in, in the timeline to that happening. And so this is Wednesday. He's had an exhausting Tuesday uh, of uh, debates in the temple and trying to get uh, tricked into saying the wrong thing so that he gets arrested. And uh, all of the powerful people are against him. They're trying to put him to death. And um, spent all that time on Tuesday, Tuesday night. Had a really exhausting talk with the disciples about the destruction of the temple and all that stuff that was coming. And so we found ourselves on Wednesday and we're just going to go a little bit at a time through this. So look at verse one, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 14. It says, It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. Um, for they said, Not during the feast, lest uh, there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so... Um, Passover, Passover is, the, is the, the backdrop for everything that's going to happen here um, from this point all the way through to uh, the end of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we kind of need to, to kind of understand that in order to really know where this is going. And so the Passover is a celebration, a memorial festival, where they remember uh, what their ancestors went through with the Lord in his rescue out of Egypt. And so it's celebrating this, this demonstration of God's power and deliverance, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt into this whole new life uh, as God's people. And the miracles that, uh, that accompanied that, especially the Passover miracle. And um, what I'll be talking about that more in the, in the coming weeks, but the short version, especially the detail to note for today, is a part of what they did, uh, they sacrificed a lamb... And they took the blood of that lamb and they put it, they smeared it on the doorposts of their home. God told them to do this and they trusted him and they did it. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to pass over all of the homes of Egypt. And when I, when I see the blood, I will, I will pass over your house and your firstborn will be spared. And it's this miraculous thing, this big step of faith. Uh, this giant work of God and using that to deliver them out of this this bondage. And so they commemorate it every year. And this was uh, a huge gathering in Jerusalem. There would have been just masses of people that were there. And so the authorities knew this is not the time to arrest and kill uh, this really controversial and popular rabbi. And so they're kind of waiting for their moment. And if you skip down to verse 10... Uh, Judas, one of the twelve, provides them the moment they've been looking for. It says, um, Judas Iscariot, who was with, uh, or who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Okay, so Judas had made his own pathway 
he had made his decision that he was going to um, he was going to meet those religious leaders. They were looking for a way to catch Jesus. He says, "I'll put, I'll bring him right to you. Just give me some money." And so that's going on. And then Mark puts in this story that uh, that didn't happen on Wednesday. It actually happened the previous Saturday. But Mark decides to put it right here. And I think a part of it is because we're supposed to it's supposed to be a contrast. Here's this really dark moment where one of Jesus' own disciples decides to hand him over uh, in exchange for money. And Mark is like, actually, there, there's a lot more going on here, but let me, let me put this, this beautiful story right in the middle of it. And so we're really going to look at, at 3 through um, whatever the end of it, 10, 9, I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll get there. Look at verse 3. We're just going to go like one verse at a time for a little bit. So, so here's the story he puts in the middle there. It says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Okay? So there's a lot of things in that, in that verse. Um, first of all, they're in Bethany which means house of poverty. So this was not the, the most like, glamorous part of Jerusalem. Okay? It's just known for the poverty of that community. Um, that's very important. And we also know that this is where Mary and Martha lived and their brother Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead. This was their, their hometown. So that would have been where that miracle took place in, in Bethany. Um, and we um, actually know, if, if you were to jump over to John 12, which you don't need to do, but John, John 12 has this same story. He includes some details that Mark does not have in his. Um, and so John 12, verse 3, um, says this about what just happened. John, uh, sorry, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So if you take John's version of the story, Mark's version of the story, and put them together, they are uh, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They're at the home of Simon the leper, and Mary is the one who, who comes in and anoints him. Okay, So we know that Mary, Martha, Lazarus are, are there, and they are, are hosting this party. And it's at this guy's house named Simon the leper, who the Bible doesn't talk about him really outside of this at all. And so we know that he lived in a poor town. We know that he um, had leprosy. But if he still had leprosy, he would be in a leper colony. He wouldn't be allowed to be a part of this at all. So he must have been healed so it's really like Simon the former leper, is what it probably should say, to be technical. Now, we don't know that Jesus healed him from leprosy, but we do know that healing from leprosy was super rare, and that Jesus was known to heal people with leprosy, and that he had performed a resurrection in the town of Bethany with these, this same group of people. And so it's not a crazy possibility that Simon the leper, Simon the former leper, had also been healed by Jesus. And so you have Mary and Martha, who are sisters, their brother Lazarus, Jesus raised from the dead, Simon the leper, who may have been healed by Jesus, 
they're conspiring to throw this dinner party for Jesus. And so they're each kind of doing the thing. Simon says, we can have it at my house. Mary says, I'll bring the food. And I'm sorry, Martha says, I'll bring the food. And Mary says, I'll bring the nard. There's a sermon quote for you. She says, I'll bring the nard. I'm waiting all week to say this. Y'all aren't laughing very much. (laughs) You bring the food, I'll bring the nard. Right? And it says it's pure nard. Which I don't know if that would make me feel any better. If someone's like, hey, let me pour this nard on you. Uh, Oh, is it pure? Okay, only the purest for me. Like, what What is going on here? Um, I've just been hanging on to that. Probably my, my like Andy Bernard uh, office fan in me is like, yeah, Nard Dog, there he is in the Bible. Um, Nard, is, this is a really, really uh, expensive kind of oil. And it's, uh, it's extracted from, the, from uh, the root of, of this particular plant that's generally found like in India. So it's imported and very, very valuable, and uh, is kept in the ca- a kind of container in order to preserve it that you had to break the container in order to get it out. So was, there was no rationing uh, of this. Like it was like once you open it, like you got to you got to use it. Um, and so that's the that's that's the picture of, of, of what's going on. And we know that that um, anointing the head was a, a way to show hospitality and welcome and. An honor to guests that you treasured. We see it even in the twenty-third Psalm, like it's it's just a part of, of the culture. And so, and so let's let's make sure that we we kind of are taking in the 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 overall setting here. Okay, here's Jesus. He's come to Jerusalem to die. Um, his first stop, he goes to Bethany to go see his friends. They throw him a dinner party, and they find the most lavish way they can convey to him how much they love him, how glad they are that he is with them. Um, For the most difficult week of his life, he's with his closest friends. And I, I love the fact that Jesus has, like, people, you know? Like, Jesus has this community. I know he has the disciples, and he has... A lot of followers, but I like the fact that they're always described as his friends. Like Jesus had a crew, and he was like, I'm going to go see him before I die. <laughs> and uh, they threw him this party, and there he's like this guest of honor. And you have this really beautiful moment, this like heaven and earth coming together moment where you see the you see the the, the heart of God on display as Jesus is is like is letting letting them love him. And you see the best parts of humanity in terms of recognizing who he is and a desire to, uh, what we would say, worship him. They were probably just like, we just, we just want to show you how much we love you. We want to show you uh, your value to us in the best, the, the way that we can possibly think of it. You know, It's pretty beautiful. And then, verse 4, like always, the disciples, they could find a way to really, really bring just garbage into a beautiful situation. They're just really good at it. Uh, so look at verse 4. Here's this beautiful scene, and this is what it says. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? 
For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Oof. Brutal, right? They're scolding her. Now, when they talk about it being worth 300 denarii, we don't really have a point of reference for that, but that, that was about a year's worth of wages for like your average day worker at that time. And being curious, being the deep researcher that I am, I was like, I wonder what the average work wage is here. So I went to ZipRecruiter.com because that's where all the deep research happens. And according to ZipRecruiter.com, uh, in the U.S., the average wage is $30,655 as of yesterday. So if we were to try to understand why they would object so much, let's just round it down to thirty grand. That's thirty grand worth of nard <laughs> used to anoint Jesus. To pour it onto his head. John tells us she also put it on his feet. Thirty thousand dollars. And then someone pipes up and is like, couldn't that money have been used better? And you know who it was? Judas. Judas is the one that said it. This is how I know. Here's John 12, verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So he's, he's quoted in Mark, but then the, John adds this little detail as well. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas got to carry the money bag for the disciples. He's skimming off the top. He's doing the math in his head. And he's like, man, that had been a nice little take there. So he finds a really holy, pious way to object to this act of worship. And the others chime in because Mark's account talks about the disciples saying it. So Judas may have, have, have thrown the match on the fire, but it lit the kindling. And so they're all there and they're scolding her. And as infuriating as that picture sounds, it really wasn't a ridiculous point that they brought up. Because at the Passover, a part of what you do is you give money to ministry to the poor. And so probably a reason why that fire caught among them is that they're already thinking Passover. They're looking for ways to bless the poor. And so they go, they go uh, one direction with it. Mary's coming from a different direction with it. And we're sitting here trying to figure out who's, who's right because 30000 is a lot of money. Like that can go a long way in caring for people. But also, uh, Jesus is worth it, right? Like, who, who's correct? And the best way to ever know who's correct in any given situation is to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you think? That's the best assessment tool you can ever use in any situation. Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think about what is going on? And so here's what Jesus has to say. Verse 6. Leave her alone. Love it. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. You will not always have me. He validates ministry to the poor. Obviously, Jesus is in favor of that, and that should always happen. 
He's saying that this, folks, this is a this is a unique moment in time. There's always going to be poor people. There's always going to be brokenness. There's always going to be the sick and and the dying and the vulnerable. Like all those things are going to continue, but this window is closing. And what she has done is a good thing. I love that Jesus defends the marginalized. I love that he stood up for her while his disciples were scolding her. In fact, Jesus approved of this so much. If you look down at verse 9, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are today, doing that very thing. right? Like Jesus was like, I'm going to make sure this gets to the Bible. That's how much. She is right, and you guys are wrong. Um, and so we have this we have this contrast, right? You have the first two verses and those last two verses of, of Judas, this greedy disciple, whose love for Jesus definitely hit its limit. And then you have this generous disciple, Mary. And many think that it was perhaps it was perhaps like a group thing, like maybe a Maybe this ointment was passed down like a family heirloom or like an emergency savings account kind of thing. You know, like if things get really tough, like sell the, you know, sell the perfume. Because that's a whole year's worth of wages. Like, but probably the group got together and said, today is the day we've been saving the oil for. Like that's for this moment. And so you have these con- compared and contrasted to one another. One is so dark and one is so Beautiful, and I think that's a part of why Mark put it here. But you know, before before we like look at the very the very last thing that Jesus says about it, <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves why why didn't the disciples see it though? Right, like why these were the guys that were with him twenty four seven for like three years now. Why at this by this point you would think. Judas would say that ridiculous thing, and the other guys would be like, "Hold on, man! Like, serious?" But they, but they didn't. And here's here's what I think is a very important for us to hang on to. See, much of the time, costly acts of worship seem illogical to us. Let's say it again: Co- costly acts of worship, things that will cost us. They seem illogical, you know, we're, especially as Americans, we're so pragmatic, you know, and we analyze everything and we're, we like control and we like, you know, and so we get really like, um, we, we become very logic driven. And there are times when God has, has called us to do something, instructed us to do something, or you just feel compelled to do something like they did. And yet you, you pump the brakes because your brain starts going and you're like, like all these red flags go off. I'm like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. That's what was happening here. Here's this, this thing that, that they should be watching and they should be like, what a beautiful moment that our rabbi gets to be worshipped and loved in this way. This is incredible. I wish I had $30,000 worth of this ointment as well because I would give it to you. And instead, their, their logic has kicked in. Here's and here's what I mean. I was going through thinking of like different different examples of like costly acts of worship, and I kept coming back to to this this one particular thing known as tithing, 
right? And don't check out on me. I know sometimes people are like, I don't like when preachers talk about money. Okay. Jesus talked about money a lot. So uh, if, if anything, if I want to be like him, I should talk about money more. So just, you know, take it for what, for what it's worth. Uh, but, I, but I feel like this, this is so relevant to us. Um, so the tithe, right, the tithe is um, God says that the first 10% of what you make goes to him. And in the New Covenant era, that, that, and in our setting, that would be it goes to the church. And uh, I always have to remind people, like, I don't work on commission, so I have no, this doesn't really matter to me at all. And uh, I don't see anyone's giving records, and so I have no one targeted in my head, or I don't see any of that stuff. I just see my own giving record. Um, and, and so what God says, first 10% goes to him. Then the 90% is yours to steward. And why would God do that? Like, why would God give, why would God tell us to do that? Why would he instruct us to do that? Well, here's, here's three very, very quick reasons. One reason is that uh, whenever you are tithing, it helps deflate the power of our second favorite idol. Right? What's, what's, who's the first favorite idol? Right? Preacher. No. You. You are, you are, your, own, you are your favorite idol. Second favorite idol? Money which we tend to use to worship the number one idol, right? And so when we tithe, it takes the power, uh, it, it like deflates that. And God teaches and retrains us of how money is supposed to be used in the kingdom of God. That's, that's part of what it does. Another thing that it does is it shows God, like you look at God and you say, God, I believe that you had given this to me to do and that you can, you can take care of me better with the 90% than I could ever do with 100%. You know why? Because God is better at math than you are. Yes. He says that we should test him in this, actually. If you don't think that God's better at math than you, then take three months, do a true 10% tithe, and see, see where the numbers shake out. Third thing that, that it, about this is that when everyone does it, when everyone like does this tithe thing, then the ministry of the church is fueled and the gospel gets across the street and to the nations, right? So it's a win-win-win, okay? Our, uh, we have idolatry is diffused and we are retrained in that. Uh, we get to show God that we trust him and we're taken care of way better than if we were on our own. And the work of the church gets done, gets funded. And that sounds like fantastic, right? All through this act of worship, and yet, the studies, like there are like groups that study these things. American Church doesn't tithe 10% or more. They tithe more like 2%. So why, why, why would that happen? Like why has that happened? I think there's a couple of reasons, but I think that logic, like we see with the disciples, I think logic is a part of what keeps those extravagant acts of worship from happening. Those, those costly Acts of worship because we start to think about it, you know. You're like, oh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me to give that much money to the church. That check becomes painful. You look at you take your take your annual salary and like take ten percent of it. That's a that's a chunk of money that you could probably use for other things, right? And you start to think about it, like, man, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. Or if I were to give that money, I'd have to stop doing this or this or this, you know. I have to rework my whole system and all this stuff, or I'm in too much debt, or you know, the the numbers just don't work. 
The spreadsheet doesn't even out. There's no way that what's coming in, what's going on, that this can make it happen. And so we get caught in this loop of logic. And we talk ourselves into doing something else. Something different than what God has called us to do. It's not that different than the disciples looking at this extravagant, costly act of worship and saying, oh, that's not the right way to do it. This is, this is the right way to do it. And Jesus says, no, she got it right. She picked this moment. like She knows that this moment is not one that can be passed up. And no series of logic is going to talk her and her family out of doing like, and expressing this thing. And, and although the tithe is a really practical like, like context to talk about that, it can also apply into other things. Like when, when, when an, an act of worship will cost you time, it's easy to convince yourself you don't have time for stuff, isn't it? I don't have time to disciple someone or be discipled. I don't have time to do spiritual mentoring. I don't have time to do community group. I don't have time to serve in the church. I don't have time to have my neighbors over. I don't have time to, to do, you know, it's whatever it is. It's easy. Time, time is this precious commodity to us. And it's very easy for a logic to keep you from doing what your heart, what you know you're supposed to do. It's very easy when the cost of something is, it's not money, it's not time. It's more like, oh, what if I might look, like look uncool for a minute, you know? Like you might be in a worship service and you're like, and you want to like express something to God and you're like, yeah, but what if someone sees me? You know? What if the live stream cameras like happen to like come upon me and someone can see the back of my head? Oh no, what will happen? YouTube will, YouTube will blow up and I'll become a meme next thing you know. It's like, no, it's not going to happen. Or what if, what if, what if the cost is like maybe being uncomfortable, feeling awkward, you know? I want to have this conversation about Jesus with someone, but I don't know. It would just be weird. It'd be awkward. I want to pray with this coworker of mine who's going through a hard time, but I don't, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like, and all these things where like, yeah, there, it's going to cost me to show Jesus his worth in this way. It's going to cost me something. Logic will keep you from doing that very easily. And so if you find yourself being caught in that logic loop, let me just remind you of this picture. You have this, this woman and her family anointing Jesus. And Jesus 100% approving of it. To the point of making sure they get in the Bible. And then you have these disciples over here just griping, complaining, scolding at her. And they are all good. I know the feeling, believe me. You got these disciples over here just going crazy. Remember that picture and decide which which where in the scenario do you want to be, you know? And ask Jesus to help help you be who you want to be in that scenario. We all want to be the extravagant worshipers, right? Like the ones who who are just like Jesus is worth everything I have. It doesn't nothing else matters. But sometimes it takes a bit to get there and he'll help us. And all that, you know what, that's not even the, the main point of the sermon. <laughs> that's just a little side caveat. Because there's something, there's something bigger going on here. And as I kind of bring it, bring it home, really, really listen in. Because there's something happening in the background here that's super, super important. Look at verse 8. So she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Okay? She's anointed my body before him for burial. That word anointed 
That's a good like church word, right? It works into songs really well, and it's easy to drop that in there. But but what does it what does it mean? Well, anoint it it means like to to pour or to slather. It was a word I kept seeing a lot of places like oh slather. But it's like you 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 put some oil on it can be it can be an object, but that's not like a whole temple thing. Let's go. It can be it's but people. That's what we need to focus on today. People. You anoint a person. And there are three three different contexts where we see this the, the most in the Bible. One is for burial, and that's what Jesus acknowledges here. That you anoint a body, you prepare it for burial. The second thing that we see in the Bible is anyone that's in an office of authority. Whenever they're put into that office, they are anointed. Uh, prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed. And kings are anointed. The third context where we see anointing is with the sacrificial animal, Passover. So you would go on a Sunday and you would buy your sacrificial lamb, take it back to where you're staying, and you would... Uh, examine the animal to make sure that it was perfect. Once you determine that this, this animal will is an acceptable sacrifice, you took oil and you would rub oil on the feet of the animal and you would rub oil on the head of the animal. Which is exactly what Mary did to Jesus. And so here we have this moment where Mary and her family are expressing their love and gratitude to Jesus. And yet, the backdrop for this, all over Jerusalem, people are taking oil and anointing the feet and the head of their sacrificial lambs. Jesus, our Passover lamb, also our prophet, and our priests, and our king, who very soon would be buried, just for a couple of days. So here's Mary doing this really simple, extravagant, costly, but simple, beautiful act of worship that she and her family felt compelled to do for him. And here's God using it to do this, this much better, bigger thing to say he's the prophet he's the priest he's the king he's the lamb don't you love how God will take those simple things that we do which seem really temporary in the moment and you never know what he's doing in the eternal in this bigger beautiful picture of what's going on I'm so glad that Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Simon conspired to have this moment of anointing our Passover lamb. And even while Judas was conspiring with the authorities to have him killed, they were arranging his death. They're preparing his death. God's preparing his life. He shared with us. It was incredible. Just an incredible, incredible moment. And so there are probably different things that you can grab onto from today, but you know the most important for all of us is, is that anointing. Because you know, 
You know, there's a Hebrew word, Messiah, that we hear a lot. They're waiting for the Messiah. You know what Messiah means? Anointed one. They kept saying, when the anointed one comes, everything will be different. Here he is. And in Greek, the same word, Christos, the Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. Here it is. He's receiving it because he's saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to say yes to my own sacrifice. Beautiful, right? So, uh, we take this in, we breathe it in, and whatever you want God, whatever God wants you to take away from it, that's a stewardship thing. But in these next few moments, we're going we're gonna to sing a little bit. We're going to have our own, our own expressions to our prophet, priest, king, and lamb. Okay, so let's stand together and I'm going to pray for us. We're just going to sing and pray and respond to whatever God is stirring. Lord, what a gift to us. Um, story and a Bible full of stories that... Uh, in, so many ways are just so it's just so simple. Yeah, you just showed Jesus how much he's worth to you. And that blesses him, and then we'll use that to do whatever he wants to do with it. It's incredible. And Jesus, I'm so I'm always just so stunned at your willingness. Because I can't think that those sacrificial lambs that were being purchased and brought back to these homes and inspected and anointed, I can't think that they just went along with it. I can't think that, they're, they, that, that they were cooperative. And yet here you are, welcoming this anointing. Correcting your disciples who are trying to think their way through it in some other direction, and you said, no, bring, like this is good, this needs to happen, this is this is." Correct. Because you were just saying yes to the Father the whole way through. And I ask you help us to do that, but with you as our example. And so, Jesus, as we sing to you and about you and for you, we pray that you're honored by our worship and by just by what our hearts, how our hearts respond to these stories about you. Your willingness to not only being our prophet and priest and king, but to being our our Passover lamb.